really fun series. I have really enjoyed it. I hope that all of you have really enjoyed it. And I want to end today uh, by, by talking about a garden to a city. And I want to simply point out that if you... Um, let me see if I can do this here. I, I was planning on having both hands. But uh, if you begin, or if you take sin out of the Bible, here's what you have. If you take sin out of the Bible, you have a pamphlet. You guys with me? What you have, if you take sin out of this story, what you have is Genesis 1 and 2, and then Revelation 2, 1 and 2, 2. (laughs) Right? Never thought about it like that before. Okay? So, but in this pamphlet, if you were to take sin completely out of the story, it takes sin out of the Bible, look at the pamphlet, Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and 22, you can still see that there's movement, right? Because in Genesis 1 and 2, we have a garden, and in Revelation 21 and 22, we have a city. So even if you take sin out of the story, this story, the story of the gospel, the story of God, the story of Jesus, is still going somewhere. It's moving somewhere. Uh, There's some place that God wants to take us. Right? And so what I want to do is I want to talk about that a little bit today and understand the implications of this and, and what it means to move in our lives from a garden to a city. Are you guys with me? Are you ready for this? This is good stuff, and I am excited to share this with you. Okay, So I want to read a little bit about this garden, and I want to read a little bit about this city. So turn in Genesis chapter 2. I want to read verses 8 through 17. Genesis chapter 2. Verses 8 through 17. All right, this is a little bit about the garden first. It says this. Now the Lord God planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You remember this, that we read this passage in the first week of this series. Now let's move on where we get a little bit more details about the garden. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and there it separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is shown and it winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold and the gold of that land is good aromatic resin and onyx are also there and then the name of the second river is Gihon it winds through the entire land of Cush and the land of the third the the third name of the third river is Tigris it runs along the east of Asher and the fourth river is the the Euphrates now the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it now that's important for our conversation later on. And then the Lord God commanded man, if you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you eat of it, then you will surely die. There are the details that we get from the Garden of Eden. Now we can also infer a lot of details from the creation story itself, but specifically regarding the garden, those are the details we have. Now turn in your Bibles all the way to the back to Genesis, to Revelation, and I want to read 21 through uh, a little bit into chapter 22. Okay, so let me find it here. Genesis 21, uh, sorry, Revelation 21, starting in verse 16. Starting in verse 16, it says this. 
Now the city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide, and he measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, as wide and as high as it is long. And he measured it with a wall, and it was 144 cubits thick by human measurement, which the angels was using. And the wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city were walls decorated uh, with every kind of precious stone. The first was jasper, sapphire, agate, uh, emerald, onyx, ruby, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, turquoise, jacinth, amethyst, and the 12 gates were the 12 pearls, each made of a single pearl. And the great street of the city of gold was a city of gold and as pure as transparent glass. And I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city does not uh, need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of the Lord gives it its light and the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by this light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. And on the day that its gates will ever be, there, uh, on no day will its gates ever be shut. There will be no night there and the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter into this city, nor will anyone who ever does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the lamb's book of life. Let's keep reading into Genesis, Revelation. 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystals. You see that we could have done a sermon on the rivers, right? We're already seeing river connection here. There's a river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the street of the city. And on each side of this river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit once every month. We've talked about this already in the trees and the leaves of the tree are the healing of the nations and no longer will there be any curse for the throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will be with them. They will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads. (laughs) Never read that before, huh? Then there will be no more night. There uh, There will not be need for light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give it their light and they, that is you and I in this city, will reign forever and ever. That's good news, huh? Garden to a city. Garden to a city. I want to explore this movement a little bit closer and see what God has to say to us. Because here's my conviction about preaching. It's not a one-way thing. Uh, it's a conversation that as the Lord speaks to me, you, it is your role and your duty to lean forward, listen in, and what, listen to what God has to say to you, and then respond to what God is doing in your life. So uh, the sermon is not just a one-directional thing where the presentation is over at the end, but I hope it, that it is the start of a conversation between you and, and, and among yourselves of what God is doing in in your life among you and God about how, how he is speaking to you and in response to the message that he's given to you. And so today I want to see what God has for us together as we lean in to God's presence and God's word. Um, and the first thing that we have to realize is that from the very beginning, creation is dynamic. It isn't static, right? And so let's look at this. Turn to Genesis. Uh, you can, I'm going to mention a lot of stuff. So if you want to turn there, you can follow along. But what we find in Genesis is that there's this, 
and I mentioned this last week, but creation itself is not this static thing. It's a dynamic thing. In other words, when God created it, it just was, it hasn't always just existed precisely as it was on day one, right? And let's look at a few passages that help us learn that and show that. In Genesis 1 verse 11, we see the word or, or the verse is that God has called the, the uh, vegetables or, or the vegetation to produce or to plant seeds. And the word produce here or sprout is the word dasha. And so the, there's this idea that creation itself is, is planting seeds to bring more trees. Trees plant more trees, which grow trees, right? Plants do plant seeds, which grow plants, okay? So there's, there's this movement, this dynamic thing, this dasha going on, where things are sprouting, things are being produced, okay? So that we, there's this dynamic nature to, create, to creation, okay? Then, then just three verses later in one fourteen, the light and the dark are separated, and they produce days, months, years, seasons, okay? This thing is going somewhere. Garden, to a city. In, in chapter 1, 22, God instructs the animals to be fruitful and multiply. Okay? Birds make more birds. Fish go and make more fish. Beasts go and make more beasts. Are you with me? Creation is dynamic, it isn't static. And then in Genesis 1, 26 and 28, we find this really interesting thing. That the crown of creation, humankind, Adam and Eve, are instructed to take this dynamic creation that's going somewhere, that's ever growing, and to rule over it. Twice, Genesis 1, 26 and 28, Adam and Eve are told to rule over this dynamic creation. And it's interesting, and, and this is just a side note, but from the very beginning... God uses humans to accomplish his purposes. Now that's a sermon all, all in itself, but from the very beginning, God creates this dynamic, ever-flowing, ever-moving thing, and then the two humans on the planet, he says, now go and rule over this. In other words, guide this somewhere. This creation is going somewhere, and I'm commissioning you now to watch where it's going, to guide over it. And so then, in Genesis 2.15, part of what we read, we're told to care for the Garden of Eden. The Adam and Eve are to care for it. They're to take care of it. And this word is, is shamar. In other words, to keep, to guard, to be a watchman over. Okay, so to rule over it and then to watch over it or to guard. In other words, this thing is going to have to be directed because it's so dynamic. Are you with me so far? So, in other words... God places us uniquely in this sort of hierarchy of creation that we talked about last week, right? He places us to rule over creation in such a way that we, that we guide it, that we, and he has made the creation to produce that which we need, right? We rule over it. He says, take whatever you need for, for resource, for food, all of this thing. It is yours to have and to help yourselves live so you are rulers over it. But then he also gives the instruction to take care of it. In other words, do not use it in such a way that it will no longer produce for you. So right from the very beginning, God is giving us this instruction 
to rule over creation and yet care for it in such a way that it can sustain us as it was meant to be. Now, then in Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, we see this thing, they will reign. And the, the language here is this language of being kings over creation. And so we're rulers and we're stewards and we're kings. And it's all in this sort of perfect harmony and hierarchy of creation that we see so far. Now, I know this feels more like a seminary classroom than a church, right? Stick with me. I promise this is going somewhere. All right. So that's what we see is in Revelation. So Adam and Eve are told to rule, to guide, to watch over creation. And then at the end, they become kings of creation. And here's what I want you to realize all of this for. Here's the bottom line. You and I are co-creators with Christ. In other words, God makes something out of nothing, and then he commissions us to take that something and order it in such a way that it will honor him. Are you with me? And so in that sense, you and I are co-creators with Christ. Again, this is what Paul talks about in Romans, where we're co-heirs, we're co-creators, that everything that is given to Christ belongs to us because we are in Christ. And so you and I are co-creators with Christ. Now, this, in all reality, is just an extension of last week's message. Um, this is, very, in a very real sense, part two of what we talked about last week. And last week, we sort of ended with the thought, when we were talking about beginning in the beginning and how that changes everything, we ended with the thought that repentance is sort of this invitation to return. That creation is endowed with this perfect harmony, this perfect order of creator over all, humans in the middle, and then, and then creation. And that we are to honor God, never worship the creation, but always worship the creator. But we can't, you know, we, we can't go either way. We can't say to God, you're in my seat, nor can we look to creation for that which only God can provide. And so we talked about this sort of perfect harmony, and we called it God's shalom. And what we said out of that is that repentance is essentially an invitation to return to the perfect hierarchy that was there right from the very beginning. To take our proper place as co-creators with Christ in which we properly order and guide and steward, steward creation. Now this expresses itself in all kinds of ways in our world, all right? So I want you to think about the thing that you love about life the most. What is it about life that you absolutely love? And I can guarantee that the core essence of that which you love can be traced back to Genesis 1 and 2 from the very beginning. Let me give you some examples. Some of you love beauty or aesthetics, right? If you, if you come into a room and, and things, the colors clash or, or things don't match or you look at someone's outfit and you're like, ew, right? And you love this sort of beauty and aesthetics. You're not going to work in any environment that's messed up. These are the people that your desk is clean. You have like Starbucks lights in your office because fluorescents just drive you nuts, right? And you love this sort of beauty and aesthetic. That love for beauty and aesthetics can be traced right back to Genesis 1 and 2 where we are given God's 
beautiful creation. Some of you like to make things. Some of you, uh, what you value most in life is partnership or relationship. Some of you, worship. Some of you, exploration or explanation. Or exploration for the purpose of explanation. How does this thing work? right? Or you, some of you love exploration. Like when you go on vacation and, and your, your spouse just wants to sit there and read a book and you're like, "Uh uh-uh, this ain't going to fly. I've got to go out and I've got to see what's around me. I've got to see the city. I've got to explore what's around me. And you value that most in life. That can be traced back. The core essence of that can be traced back to Genesis one and two learning as well. And so whatever it is that you love about life, can be traced back to Genesis 1 and 2. So think about the thing that you do in life uh, that you just think to yourself that while you're doing it, you could absolutely do it forever. And like time just sort of stands still when you do that, right? For some of you, that that might be like making things or woodworking, right? And you're like, you got the power tools out. You're like, yeah. You're like, you kind of feel like a man, you know? And and you're making things. And and you like say, I made that, right? That's kind of what I am because when when I was in seminary and as a pastor, you're never really done, right? There's nothing that you can ever really point to and say, I did that or I accomplished that. Everything is sort of in the idea, like this sort of intangible or in the realm of ideas. And so a lot of pastors I know are woodworkers workers because at the end of the day they can say I cut that and then I sanded it and then I hammered it together you know and you can trace that back right and so you love to woodwork some of you love we call you green thumbs and you and you love to uh, get your fingernails dirty and you love to like dig in the earth right why is it that we love these things because it's ordering creation It's participating with God's creation and ordering it in such a way that we have something, right? So some of you, what you really love to do or what you would really love to do in life is you want to start an organic garden so that people all over the city can eat healthy organic food, right? And you're like, man, I love that. And I just want to dig my fingers in the dirt. Some of you love music, whether you play it, whether you listen to it, there's this music. Maybe some of you, it's poetry or the art of, of putting words together on paper and you just love that and you live for that. Whatever it is that you love, you can be traced back to Genesis 1 and 2. Others of you have landscaped your house or your apartment without permission six times already this year, right? And you just love that kind of thing. And some of you, and those of you that are like this, I would would invite you to come to my house and minister to me. Some of you love to mow your lawn because you like that green line you get around your shoes, right? And you're like, yeah, (laughs) you know? Some of you aren't like that. Okay, that's all good, you know. But if you are like that, there is a place for you to minister at our address. So you just come and talk to me later because I am not that guy. Why do we love these sorts of things? Of course we love these things because we're ordering creation. We're taking this something that God has given to us and we're ordering it in such a way that there's something else that comes out of it. Right, you, you mow your lawn and there's like this fresh smell of cut grass and you love it and your shoes are green and there's like nothing wrong with the world, you know? Whatever it is, you can trace it back to Genesis 1 and 2. And we love these things because it's ordering creation. It's taking the something that God gave us and making, making something else out of it. And sometimes 
sometimes it's not very clear what people love to do, and so you, you, but you can really ask them some of the right questions, and, and I wouldn't call them prying questions. I would call them kind of like second-level, third-level questions you begin to ask them about what is it that they really love to do, and then when they finally tell you, it's like this, this beautiful thing, but they say, you know, it's not practical, or I can't make a living doing it, Right? But what they love to do and what they would love to do is sort of this beautiful picture of ordering creation. And there are other times that when you hear about what somebody loves to do, it is just weird. Like, I love to play the triangle. Ding! Like, I don't know why, but every time I just hit it, it's just like so magical. Ding! And you're like, all right, you know, there's a place for everybody. Okay? You know, sometimes it is just plain weird. But a lot of times, the core essence of what people would love to do is sort of this beautiful thing. And yet they say, oh, I can't make a living doing it. Or it isn't practical. So the story begins with ordering creation as rulers. The story ends with ordering creation. And then we are called rulers. We're called kings. Part of the truth of Christianity is that we are co-creators with Christ. And to co-create with Christ essentially means this, that we take the God's something, that where he made something out of nothing, and we there are then commissioned to partner with him and take that something, form it into something else for his glory and for greater shalom in the world. Let me give you three examples. And some of you are like, I know where this is going. I've seen where this is going from the very beginning. And I can already tell you the three examples. Pastor Andy is going to tell us to reduce, reuse, and recycle. Let me tell you, folks, that's good and that's all important, but it is much more profound than that, all right? So if you've, pl- if you've like, unplugged and you're like, I've heard the reduce, reuse, recycle, I've heard the Jack Johnson song on the Curious George soundtrack, I'm over it, all right? If that's you... Come on back because it's going to be a lot more profound than that. So let me give you three examples of how this plays out in the world because I know some of you are like, worst message ever, where is this going? Come on now, you got to give me a break, okay? So the first example that I want to give you is in the example of business. Business is essentially this, the exchange of goods or services for a fair price. In other words, a fair product for a fair price. So whether it's transportation, whether it's investments or brokerage or food or goods, whatever it is, it's the sort of this exchange of goods or services for a fair price. And if you think about it, what is the goal of business? What is the sort of the root uh, of business, the root cause, the root goal of business in our exchange among one another for goods and services? Isn't it so that everyone will have what they need? Right? We enter into this exchange where there's a fair product for a fair price in order that all of us can have what we need. Do you see that? So that's sort of this root thing in business. And so fundamental to business is the ordering of creation. The earth produces, and out of that produce, materials are made, and out of that material, goods are made, which are sold for a fair price. Are you with me? The iPhone did not just appear out of the air. It came out of creation and ordering materials in a very meticulous and beautiful way, if I don't say so myself. It's to make the iPhone. It's not like we just sort of came up with it. It's, it's the ordering of what the earth produces is the core of business. So we 
we get houses, books, food, clothes, technology, and hopefully in business all around the world, we are properly ordering those things toward God's shalom. Hopefully we're properly ordering all these goods and services so that everyone in fact has what they need. Fair product for a fair price. Okay, I know we're we're kind of flying at 10,000 feet here and we're not getting lost in the details, but that's essentially the core of what business is. And business is a necessary thing in our world. If we are called to rule over creation, to care for it, to steward, steward it, and to supply everyone with what they need, then business is sort of this core thing and this necessary thing in our world for the exchange of goods, services, and products. In third world countries, just to illustrate the importance of business, in third world countries where there is no income to, to, for the exchange of goods, one of the most successful movements in business is to give microloans to different villages. And microloans are essentially bar- giving money, a little bit of money, to third world countries or villages where, they t- where someone, a family or several families, is able to take that microloan and begin to start a business. And what that business does is then people, that opens the, the process of exchange so that people can spend money, and then by having a business, they make money, and it absolutely revolutionizes these third world villages by introducing the idea of business or the exchange of goods so that everyone can have what they need. And if you don't know anything about microloans, I encourage you just to Google it and get familiar with the idea because it is wildly successful in third world villages. This idea of opening villages up to the exchange of goods so everyone has what they need. And so I would argue with you today, as business is the exchange of goods so everyone has what they need, and the, the very essence of it is ordering creation those of you that are in business or studying to be in business, I would argue that that is a holy calling. But what happens so often is that we see business as sort of secondary to real work, spirit work, right? And and, and so someone will say, Oh, you're in business? Oh, and you, and you make lots of money through your business? <laughs> I'm a pastor. Or I'm in ministry. And we sort of create these two levels where business, we're working with physical goods or, or services or products is here, and, but the real action and the real work is here for those who are in ministry. Right, And we sort of create this plane or this hierarchy and, and, we, and we sort of dumb down business and we say, oh, I'm just a business person. And so essentially the goal of the business person is to make money by selling their goods and then just give it away to those who are doing the actual work. Right? That is oftentimes the mistake that we make because if we start our story in Genesis 3... Instead of Genesis 1, then material or the physical is sort of fundamentally suspect, right? Uh, that, that the physical nature, the tree caused the sin. And so if we start the story there, it's easy for us to say everything that's physical is, is suspect. And then business becomes sort of this, um, it's necessary to live here, but it isn't real. It isn't important. And sometimes I hear business people say, um, you know, I wish I could get to a place where I could make more money 
that would enable me to be in ministry. And I think to myself, you spend eight hours a day with the same people in your office, and these people are hurting people, and they need the hope of the gospel. And you are wishing that you could make enough money to get out of that because you want to be in ministry? Listen, you are in the game. I mean, you are where the action is at in business. And so business is this holy calling. But it goes a lot deeper than just sort of witnessing to your coworkers, right? I mean, that's part of it, sharing the good news with these people that you spend endless amount of of time with in the office that have come to know you, that have come to trust you, and yet they find in their lives they are hurting and they are dying inside and they need the hope of the gospel. They need someone to share with them the good news. That's a key part of what it means to be a godly person in business. But it goes even deeper than that in sort of this ordering of... creation. And so what I want to tell you about is that there's a movement among businesses to go to a triple bottom line, which I think is genius. In other words, lots of businesses today are concerned only about one bottom line, right? Have we made a profit? Have we made more cash than we did last year? But there's a movement among businesses now to consider a triple bottom line. And that is to say, are we making a financial profit, but how is our business affecting the environment and how is our business affecting people? In other words, it's asking businesses to to pose the question in their offices, are the, the making of our goods and services, is it in any way exploiting the creation or is it exploiting people? And if it is, then we need to back up and reconsider the triple bottom line. I think it is absolutely genius and a great gospel centered way of operating in business. Are you with me? You see, this ordering of creation thing is not just about reduce, reuse, and and recycle. It moves into our business lives, our everyday lives, and says that just because you are in business does not mean you're in the real work of ministry. You are absolutely in the core of ministry in your offices, and you uh, you can conduct that business in a way that is honoring to God and brings greater amounts and degrees of shalom in the world. Is that motivating or inspiring to anyone? Some of you are in positions in your workplaces where you could be the instigators of this because you're in management, you're in upper management, you're a department head. Others of you, what would happen if you talked to your boss or your department head and began challenging them on some of these things and say, I really think that we should begin to consider a triple bottom line. Just explore that a little bit. In your, in your mind, what would it look like for you begin to begin doing that? So, business. These are just some thoughts. The other, the other example that I want to give, or the second example I want to give, is, is in art. Um, art is taking something and making it beautiful. It's ordering creation in such a way that it displays beauty in brand new ways. 
right? It's sort of the ordering of, of supplies or materials, like when we paint or form clay or draw or work with fabric. Uh, art is also the ordering of words, like in poetry and writing. Art is, is the ordering of notes in, in music in, in such a way that these artistic expressions open our eyes to brand new ways of seeing God's good world. If we begin the story in Genesis 1, we realize that God looks over all of creation and he calls it good and he calls it blessed. And so the arts are sort of the reordering of this in ways that bring out new perspectives, new forms of beauty. And, and some of us would say, and this is me, because I'm analytical. I, would, I'm, I get a lot more out of a book than a painting any day. And some of you are the exact opposite. But the, the, the idea here is that some of us would say, oh, art is sort of impractical, right? Because it doesn't do anything. It just sits there. But the impracticality of the art is precisely its value because the artistic expression reminds us that closest to God's heart is not efficiency. Some of us need to hear that because in our lives, the most important thing is efficiency. And we look at the artistic expressions and we say there is no value there because it's not very efficient. But the impracticality of art is what is at its, the core of its value because it just is. And it is, and it's valuable just because it exists. In Genesis 1 and 2, God blesses everything and he calls it good. And so making these things, uh, making things out of this good world is already blessed. And so what I would say is perhaps we don't need all the labels that we have a tendency to place on art or music. I wonder if all the labels that we tend to do in this labeling system are not of so much value. Uh, I, because I'm sure, uh, I'm not so sure that we need all of these labels that we place on things because I've seen some stuff that is labeled Christian that isn't nearly as humming with God's presence as stuff that carries no label at all. Right? And so I'm not so sure the labeling system that we've, we've developed for art is as helpful. If we start the story in Genesis 1 and 2, we realize that everything is blessed. And the proper ordering of these things in artistic expression is already good. That doesn't mean there's not discernment that needs to take place, because there is. There is art that we can look at, and regardless of what form it comes, and say this is generally destructive and we need to stay away from it. But art is already good and is already blessed. Now... I want to illustrate this by playing a, a clip, an audio clip of an 11-year-old playing the violin. And I, we'll have a picture of her up on the screen. And then I just want you to listen for about a minute to a minute and a half of this 11-year-old taking notes and ordering them in such a way to produce sounds that are absolutely unbelievable. Let's listen.
Now, was that Christian or was that secular? Yes. The point is, is that art is sort of this beautiful way of expressing God's good world. And it speaks to us, doesn't it? We worship through the arts every single Sunday as these guys play music. And it speaks to us and it draws us into God's presence. Art speaks in a powerful way, like the way a Uh, When you look at a painting and it speaks to you, the words of a poem remind you of God's watch and God's care. A photograph that is just a picture of nature. It's neither here nor there, Christian or secular. And yet when you look at it, you you are drawn into worship. The very creator who's came up with the ideas of mountains, right? And so art speaks to us. Last night, uh, last night, Amy and I were at the Adventure Film Festival in Boulder, Colorado, and the last film was not just a film. It was, it was this film where the score of the film was played live and on stage. There was dancing in front of the film, so it cast a shadow and interacted with the film in such a way that it spoke to us. There was live uh, painting that would happen as the, the film would go up, painting would come, w- would be done, and then the, the screen would come come back down and the film would continue and it was all done in such a way to inspire us and to to draw out meaning in us art has value you could have just we could have just done bullet points and on a printed page to speak to us about the importance of running from complacency which was the message of of the film it could have been just printed in the program we all could have showed up at boulder theater read the program and then left right But instead, he chose to communicate this message through painting and through dancing and through film and through music. And so again, art reminds us that efficiency is not the thing that is most valuable to the heart of God. And so I would just simply ask you, what does it look like in our life to order things in such a way that they are honoring to God? The last example is justice. Injustice or the lack of justice in the world means that we aren't ordering things well, right? The fact that injustice exists in our world means that we aren't ordering things well. And and recent uh, studies have shown that there's enough food in the world to feed everyone, all 7 billion of us, but we don't have, not everybody has food. In fact, billions of people go to sleep every day hungry, having eaten either none or just one meal in that day. So we, there's enough food in the world. The problem is distribution. The problem is this disruption of God's shalom. And so if we start in Genesis chapter 3, then justice is just something that you should do if you have the time and if you have the resource. But if you start in Genesis 1, where the goal of our lives is the restoration of God's shalom in the world, then justice becomes central to the story. It becomes not something that you do if you have time and resource. It becomes part of the very being of being the people of God. And so God will one day restore all things. That means that one day he will restore empty stomachs and thirsty mouths and diseased bodies. And so justice is sort of everything in its proper place. Justice is is restoring the disruption between me and God, me and my neighbor, and me and and creation. And sometimes 
We aren't sure if justice is someone giving water to drink and then just giving them something to drink, or if justice is actually giving someone something to drink and then presenting the gospel to them, right? Have you heard that argument? What is justice? What does it really look like? Is it enough just to feed the hungry, or should I feed the hungry and then present the gospel? What is my role as a Christian? What is true justice? But what we need to realize is that no good work goes goes wasted in God's good world. God is going to restore all things, and so all of these things need to be embraced. Let me give you one final example before we bring this thing to a close, because I'm running out of time. In, in Janu- on December 26, 2004, a man named Michael Pritchards watched along with many of us as the tsunami hit the coast of Indonesia and uh, India and Malaysia and absolutely devastated these countries where clean water and, and uh, was now nowhere to be found. And he watched in horror as hundreds of thousands of people died in the tragedy and in the aftermath of the tragedy, thousands and thousands more died because of the lack of access to clean water as a result of this travesty. But then just a few months later, the same man, along with all the rest of us, watched as Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. And he thought to himself, oh, Indonesia and India, these are all third world countries. They're not nearly, they don't have near the resource as the United States of America. And so surely the United States can do a better job of getting the resources to those who are in need as a result of this catastrophe. And yet it took five days to get bottled water to the Superdome where thousands of people were left homeless. And Michael Pritchard, seeing these injustices in the world, said, I am not satisfied, and I am going to do something about it. And he happened to be an engineer. And so Michael Pritchards went along the way of developing a water bottle that itself was a filter so that in these times of horrible need, there was no need to ship bottled water to the affected areas. You could, ship, you could ship these bottles that themselves can filter the water and take the most, the most horrific water and make it sterile and clean drinking water. And it's called the Lifesaver water bottle. I have a picture of it here. There it is. And this will, will f- filter hundreds of liters of water before the filter needs to be replaced. And if, when the filter does not work, the system will shut down on itself. In other words, you, it will not filter water if it is not safe to drink. This one man went about the task of absolutely changing the way we can respond to these natural disasters in our world. We are co-creators with Christ, called to order God's shalom and God's creation in such a way that it brings greater shalom to the world. I've given you three examples of business, of art, and of justice. But my goal every single Sunday, but particularly today, is that this would not be the end of a presentation or the end of a sermon, but the beginning of a conversation. 
and that you would take these ideas and begin to ask the question, what does it look like for me to properly order God's creation in my world, in my classroom, in my neighborhood, in my workplace? How can I go about the task of ordering creation in such a way that it brings greater shalom to the world? so that it's bringing people to right relationship with God, right relationship with one another, and right relationship with the creation. How do you and I participate together in God's mission to move from a garden to a city? (laughs) 